live from Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. Your number one stop for news about movies and classic rock in the Miami Valley. It's Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. Hello and welcome to the new and improved Reels and Riffs. Name puns still included, don't worry. It's been a while, hasn't it? Almost one whole year to the day. Well, you could say I've been busy. I got a new job with the one and only WHIO, and I've been working hard as a radio producer from Miami Valley's Morning News. But I gotta say, I miss my show, and I'm here to rock and roll. Our new show format is staying similar to what it was before, but with more defined segments, new interviews, skits, and back with popular demand, weird news. I'd like to shout out our new show announcer, John Paul Stevenson. He's a professional voiceover artist and sports announcer, and we're happy to have him as part of the team. I'm really happy to be back, and we've had lots of important and surprising stuff happen in the world of music and movies while we've been on our one-year hiatus. There's been lots of blasts from the past. We got a new Ghostbusters movie starring Paul Rudd with the surviving cast of the original returning and reprising their roles. It helped that they actually tried to be funny this time, instead of remaking Bridesmaids with proton packs. The new Halloween film, Halloween Kills, has Michael Myers killing people, and literally nothing else. I know, from a title like that, you must be shocked. We got a new Matrix movie that proved not only that Keanu Reeves continues to be an ageless vampire that can still jump off of buildings like he's in his early 120s, but also that you can make an unoriginal sequel that's a shameless cash grab as long as you acknowledge that the sequel is a shameless cash grab. I joke, but it wasn't terrible. I could have dealt without the silly romance subplot, though. George Harrison's famous solo record, All Things Must Pass, was given a huge $1,000 special edition vinyl re-release and remix called the Uber Edition for the album's 50th anniversary. This includes demos for about every song on the LP, handwritten lyrics, diary entries, studio notes, a tape box, and a 44-page book chronicling the making of the album. Early reports say that for the Uber Super Special Edition, all copies will include an old brown shoe. After much begging and anticipation, Zack Snyder finally re-released his four-hour Snyder cut of Justice League, turning the most forgettable and cringeworthy team-up movie that I had ever seen into a good film that surprisingly made me say, I want Zack Snyder to make more DC movies. I know, I'm shocked too. And finally, Peter Jackson finished and released his long-anticipated nine-hour-long Beatles documentary called Get Back, proving once again that the lads from Liverpool were as equally talented as comedians as they were as musicians, enough to keep us entertained for nine hours. There are very few bands that I would want to watch hang out and vamp for nine hours, but the Beatles are definitely one of them. We'll be talking more about the Beatles and Peter Jackson's Get Back next week when we are joined by my friend, local musician, and Beatles fan Steve Lloyd. He'll be joining us once again on the show to give us a preview of his new album. And at the bottom of the hour today, we'll be joined by acclaimed voiceover artist and host of the Annie Awards, Dina Sherman. But now, let's get to my big three. Here's Random's Big Three. Number one. It can be cruel, poetic, or blind. But when it's denied, it's your violence you may find. Justice. The answer's justice. The Batman finally hits theaters March 4th. Will Robert Pattinson surprise us? And what is the future of the DC Cinematic Universe? Number two. There can be only one. 
The 80s cult classic Highlander is getting a reboot. Should Highlander fans be hopeful and will it be any good? Number three. After a rocky reception of the sequels, does Star Wars have a promise in the future on the small screen? The answers to these questions and more coming up. The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson, is finally coming to theaters in just a few months after suffering many rewrites, recasting, and recently a few COVID setbacks. It was actually one of the first stories we talked about last year. Concerning the movie itself, in spite of the backlash to the casting of the main character, I think that the movie looks promising from the trailer. The movie obviously has a very distinctive style, and the cinematography gives off that colorful cyberpunk vibe that reminds me very strongly of Blade Runner 2049. And the choice to make the Riddler into a Zodiac Killer-type villain is a nice change of face for the character especially compared to the last live-action Riddler, played by Jim Carrey. Thank you very much. In regards to Pattinson, the last Twilight movie was 10 years ago. I think it's time to move on. There's been plenty of Batman actors to have embarrassing pre-Batman performances, like Mr. Mom Michael Keaton himself. A bunch of people drafted a petition back then in 1989, before the days of the internet, to try to stop Michael Keaton from being Batman. But he surprised everyone, and the 89 Batman movie was a huge sensation. It was the summer of the bat. He did a good job, so let, let's give Robert Pattinson a chance. This new trailer really spotlights Catwoman, and I'm happy they're giving her a bigger role than I originally thought they would. The new trailer also shows off some of the well-shot action scenes, which is one of the things that I'm excited for. From the glimpses that we've gotten from the trailer, the fighting looks dynamic, well-shot, and brutal. It almost reminds me of the Batman Arkham games. You can tell the movie's going for this very bleak, somewhat realistic and gritty feel similar to the Nolan trilogy, but significantly more stylized. For as good as the Dark Knight trilogy was, I do miss the heavily stylized comic book-like visuals of the Burton films, as opposed to the Taxi Driver, Scorsese-esque crime movie aesthetic. I think that this film might strike a good balance. They just revealed that the film is will be PG-13 a few days ago, which, as disappointing as this can be to some people, I'm not shocked. It's a Batman movie, after all. I don't think it will affect the quality too much, though. But the Batman isn't the main DC-related topic I want to discuss here. Are they ending the DC Cinematic Universe? Or DC Expanded-verse, or the Snyderverse, whatever you want to call it, the Snyderverse has been fraught with issues since it started. Now, I've always been a bigger DC fan than Marvel, by far. I mean, DC has Batman. That's all you really need to say. But it's more than I say that I'm a DC fan before I say that the DC Cinematic Universe really feels like it was handled very haphazardly, without any sort of plan. Say what you will about Marvel and like some of their recent decisions, but Marvel really pioneered the shared cinematic universe concept, partly because they had a really good build-up, and they were the first to actually have a plan. For after establishing the characters and setting the stage over the course of two Iron Man movies, the Hulk, Thor, and Captain America movies, we had most of the characters set up in their own movie where the characters were given a chance to be introduced, and the pace had a chance to breathe. And then when we finally got the Avengers, we almost knew all these people, and we already liked these people. It felt natural, and it didn't feel like they rushed it. Then the Avengers did amazingly. It was one of the highest grossing movies of all time. So, of course, everybody tried to copy it. 
Copy what? The shared universe, of course. With DC, another comic book universe, it made some sense to try to copy that model, but suddenly everybody was trying to do it. We had the Godzilla movies created in a shared universe, which kind of made sense. We had that new Mummy remake with Tom Cruise trying desperately to create a shared monster universe and failing horribly. Or that really bizarre thing that J.J. Abrams tried to do with the Cloverfield series, where he took Cloverfield and then he added on two unrelated movies, one good and one really, really bad, and tried to tie them into the first film entirely with minor reshoots. I don't envy Zack Snyder, because being told by the higher-ups to rush a shared universe and fast-track a Justice League movie from a standalone Superman movie is very rough. I'm guessing he really didn't get much of a choice or time to actually set up like he wanted to. For all my criticisms, I will say that Zack Snyder definitely has a striking and distinctive look and filmmaking style. Whatever he does is always stylized and enjoyable to look at, even if you don't like it. His Man of Steel definitely has some enjoyable bits. Especially Michael Shannon as Zod. I will find him! I love that. But the movie feels like it tried to make Superman too much like Batman. I mean, he spends most of his time brooding and being upset about his dead father. He barely smiles and just doesn't feel a lot like Superman. It's not Henry Cavill's best performance. He can do better. Nobody in this film feels like they're having fun. Except Michael Shannon, of course. I will find him! But one of the biggest things about Man of Steel, love it or hate it, is that you can definitely tell they were not thinking Justice League when they made it. And then in Batman vs. Superman, suddenly there's been a, there's a Batman that's been around for decades. There's literally, they try to set up as much as they can in that one movie. It's like Warner Brothers told Snyder, look at how well the Avengers did. We need a Justice League movie now. Just um, throw up all the setup into like three movies. You can tell they really rushed to get to Justice League, and it shows. In the original cut, it really shows. And the only character who feels really set up is Wonder Woman because of her excellent solo film. They've made Wonder Woman cool again, and the director gets huge kudos for reintroducing the character to a new generation. The original theatrical version of Justice League that we got was a complete mess. Unfortunately, Zack Snyder had to leave the project halfway through because of a personal tragedy. In his place, Warner Brothers decided to bring in Avengers 1 and 2 director Josh Whedon for reshoots in an attempt to make the film closer to an Avengers movie. While I had problems with how dark and broody Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman were, they were at least, like, they at least had a consistent tone. The theatrical version of Justice League just gives you tonal whiplash, and you can tell that Josh Whedon was trying to insert as much Marvel-like quips, which doesn't, as he could, which just doesn't fit those characters in this universe. It was so forgettable and so bland because you can tell that there was two directors' creative visions butting heads against each other because they were very incompatible. It's really sad all the missed potential from Justice League. Seeing Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League earlier last year was probably one of the biggest what-could-have-been moments that I've ever seen. It really makes me think that most of the missteps were from in the DCEU were from Warner Brothers and not Snyder. It's not perfect, but I thought it was actually really well done, and it showed what Snyder could do with more time to set up his characters and universe. The, the Joker is still terrible. The characters are not making stupid jokes. They have some depth and some character setup, and the new characters are done a lot better, and Cyborg especially gets a lot of focus and gets a real character arc to introduce him and make him likable to new fans who might not know who he is. 
instead of just letting Superman solve everything at the end, they make everybody and making everybody else seem useless. They make all the characters in the Snyder Cut feel important. It establishes real stakes by not only making the main villain Steppenwolf better, but also establishing Darkseid as the big bad and creating an actual endgame to lead into future films. While parts felt rushed in spots, the film was definitely given the care and effort by Snyder that a Justice League film deserves. There's so much potential here, and it's sad that, as of now at least, Warner Brothers basically flat out said that they're done with Zack Snyder's vision, and I suspect the rest of the expanded universe will follow suit. As is true with a lot of creative properties, suits meddling with creators is why we can't have nice things. We'll see if they can pull the DC Cinematic Universe back, or if they decide to go back to primarily isolated like films again. Only time will tell. We have to take a short break, but when we come back we'll be discussing the upcoming remake of the 80s cult classic film Highlander, and Star Wars' promising future on TV, and Song of the Week. And at the bottom of the hour today, we'll be joined by acclaimed voiceover artist and host of the Annie Awards, Dina Sherman, all on Reels and Riffs. You're listening to Reels and Riffs, back in a moment. We now return to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9 FM. Hello and welcome back to Reels and Riffs. It is January 27th, and on this day in 1956, Elvis Presley made rock history when he released his hit single, Heartbreak Hotel. Elvis fan or not, one cannot deny his impact on not only rock and roll, but on many of my favorite musicians. From John Lennon and the Beatles, to Jimmy Page, Roger Daltrey, and even Jimi Hendrix, whenever you hear a list of their early influences, if you're reading an autobiography or something, you'll always hear Elvis. Here's George, Paul, and Ringo on Meet in the Keen. Oh yeah, we're going to see Elvis, and then we all fell out, just like in a Beatle cartoon, we all fell out the car, all <laughs> in hysterics, trying to pretend we weren't silly. And then we went in the house, and there's Elvis sitting on a couch playing a Fender bass, plugged in an amplifier, watching the TV. And I was, oh, it's Elvis. I mean, it was Elvis. He just just looked like Elvis. It was the king, wasn't it? Is Elvis. This is Mr. Hips, you know. Hips swiveling man. Wow, you know, that's Elvis. And he was playing um, Moher Sam all evening. He had it on jukebox. He just played it like endlessly. That was like the record of the moment for him. Earlier last year, we had an opportunity to talk to a close personal friend of Elvis, character actor William Sanderson of Blade Runner fame. You'll get to hear that interview in the upcoming weeks, so stay tuned. But for now, let's talk about Highlander. A Highlander remake. (sighs) They can never leave well enough alone, I guess. Anyone who knows me knows I love the original Highlander It's cheesy and campy, but it's incredibly fun. If you've never seen it, it's about an immortal swordsman named Connor McLeod who's forced to fight in single combat against other immortals until only one remains. That one person is granted a mysterious magical prize that will either save mankind or doom them. There can be only one. It's a classic 80s movie with Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, and Clancy Brown. It has a cult following, and I would highly recommend seeing it, especially for the amazing musical score composed by the always awesome Queen. 
there's actually a lot of underrated Queen songs in this movie. Like the main track, Prince of the Universe. But if you know anything about the movie, you know about the history of the awful, awful sequels. As you can probably tell from the tagline of the movie, There can be only one. And the first movie ends, There is only one, Immortal. It's the whole tagline of the movie. The ending is wrapped up in a bow, without any room for a sequel. A prequel maybe, but not a sequel. But because successful things make people want to keep making money off of them, us poor Highlander fans have had to suffer through awful sequel after sequel. Highlander 2 is considered one of, if not the worst sequel of all time, by almost everyone. It turned a fun 80s movie about a sword fighting immortal Scotsman into a cheap Blade Runner ripoff where they turn the immortals into aliens that stars Dr. Cox from Scrubs for some strange reason. And it was downhill from there. With the exception of a decent TV show, being a Highlander fan has felt like being continually kneed in the guts for over 40 years. Just one more good Highlander movie, that's all we ask. Come on, people. Well, maybe. We may be getting our wish. Maybe. Now, this remake has been in development hell for around 10 years, but it's officially starting filming this year. I must never say this, but with what a mess that the film series has become at this point, if they're going to make a new Highlander, it needs to be a remake. But who do we have as the face of this remake? According to all recent reports, this new reboot will feature the ever-popular star of Man of Steel, Michael Shannon. I will find him! Okay, okay, that's the last time I do it, I swear. No, the person taking the helm of this new Highlander sequel is, of course, Witcher star Henry Cavill, Superman himself. You know, if we just knew him from Man of Steel and the other DC films, I definitely would be worried because he is a somewhat gray, broody, and forgettable Superman. But seeing him in The Witcher really gave me a newfound respect for Henry Cavell as an actor. He has this really strong intensity, and he channeled that dark brood and energy that really didn't work for Superman into a character who radiates that energy. Henry Cavell also shows us that he can do amazing things with sword choreography. Honestly, he showed that he has some depth and range as an actor too, and I could see him being a good choice for the star of a new Highlander film. Connor McLeod's already a brooding character, a man of few words because he's a man out of time and outlived everybody he loved. So it kind of falls in, like that kind of character falls in line with somebody like um, Geralt from The Witcher. The director is Chad Stalinsky, who is known for the John Wick movies. Hope I said that right. As I've said a few times before, the John Wick films are some of the best movies, action movies in recent history, especially with the fight scenes. The fight scenes are excellently shot in those movies, and I think two of the big, biggest reasons is that they mix realism with cool choreography. And most importantly in my book, you can actually see what's happening. I'm so glad we've gotten away from the early 2000s, Taken-esque, super close and snap-cutty fight scenes where it's trying to look super intense, but you can't see anything. I gotta say, from the little bit we know, I'm cautiously hopeful. Normally, I'm somebody who's against remakes in most cases. In rare, in like very rare cases, the remake actually improves and far outclasses the original, like one of my favorite remakes, John Carpenter's The Thing, for example. But more often than not, especially recently, most remakes are just made to capitalize on the nostalgia value of the original. They have updated effects, but nothing interesting to say and no real reason to exist. 
You remember them? They're really good or spectacularly bad, like the Ghostbusters remake. But most of them are just forgettably mediocre. You know the ones. They get released. Audiences collectively say, oh, hey, I remember that. They make a little money, and then they fade into obscurity until somebody is looking for the original years later, and they say to themselves, oh, yeah, I forgot they remade that. Does anyone remember the Psycho remake or the Total, Re or Total Recall or Karate Kid or Robocop? Does anybody remember those remakes? Probably not. They weren't terrible, but they just weren't very memorable. Most of the time, it's just the same movie made with worse actors. Since we're talking about Keanu Reeves earlier, um, one that especially incensed me was the 2015 Point Break remake. The movie isn't even old. And extra so when it was released. You can't even give me the excuse that they wanted to update the effects because almost all the stunts, including the skydiving, were done for real. Okay, rant over. Now for our last story before we go to break, let's talk about Star Wars. Star Wars has had a few ups and downs over the past few years, especially with the movies. The sequels were controversial to say the least. That being said, what's been a lot more positive for Star Wars in the last few years has been its ventures into television. The response to The Mandalorian was massively positive, and it deserved every last bit of praise that it got. For everyone that was kind of upset about what the sequels were doing, I think most people agreed that The Mandalorian was returned to form. One of the best things about Mandalorian Season 1 and Season 2 is that it brought Star Wars back to its roots. It kind of managed the balance between tying into the stories that had come before and being its own show inspired directly by many of the things that inspired the original Star Wars. Just by watching the first season, you can see all the shades of early westerns, older serials, and the samurai films of Akira Kurosawa. That's part of what made the original Star Wars so great in my opinion. It was a melting pot of a bunch of different ideals from different stories, concepts, and films that Lucas liked. Another thing that made The Mandalorian so great and successful was that it was disconnected enough from continuity that people who didn't even like or had seen all of like the Star Wars films could still enjoy it, especially with the first season. My fiancé, who had never seen Star Wars or even desired to see it, actually really loved the first season, and admittedly Baby Yoda was probably a big part of that too. The success of The Mandalorian has definitely kickstarted the push for more Star Wars series on TV. We have that Obi-Wan series coming soon starring Ewan McGregor and a possible redemption for Hayden Christensen. We'll see how that goes. And we, we saw the last season of The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels might be coming back too. But what everybody is talking about right now is The Book of Boba Fett. Now, this is a show that I was pretty hyped to see, especially after seeing Boba Fett return in The Mandalorian. It seemed like they were finally going to do the character right. In the expanded universe and other materials, Boba Fett has been expanded on and actually given real character development and an active role in certain stories. But in the films, he was always a background character who looked cool but didn't do very much. They actually gave him a lot of really cool moments in The Mandalorian and made him an actual character with motivations. And I thought they were going to continue it with this new show, and they kind of are, but it's just not being executed very well so far. I had a lot of high hopes for the show going into it, but and I haven't given up on it like quite yet, but the execution definitely feels very haphazard. I really want to like this show, and they're trying to give Boba Fett some character development and explore new interesting things, but it just kind of fallen flat in some areas. 
you can tell that the show really doesn't know what it wants to be yet. And there's a lot of very unnatural and misplaced humor. Like the show is trying to be a Marvel movie. I haven't given up on it yet. And I still say people should check it out because it might get better. But as of now, I think the execution could be handled a little bit better. Lots of Star Wars coming up, so check back here for your latest news on that. But now, before we go to break, let's check out our new segment, The Song of the Week. Pull out your turntable and spin those vinyls. This is Reels and Riffs Song of the Week. Welcome to The Song of the Week. This is the new segment of the show where either myself or my guest will pick a song that's either related to one of the topics that we're talking about or is important to us in some way. For this week, we are going to be covering one of the lads from Liverpool, which will likely be a theme on this show. Last year was the 50th anniversary of George Harrison releasing his debut post-Beatles album, All Things Must Pass. We got a brand new deluxe vinyl release in July to commemorate this exciting anniversary. And as a very special holiday surprise, we got a new music video for the memorable and controversial My Sweet Lord, which will be our song of the week. I've got to say, this music video was a complete surprise out of nowhere, and it's packed full of celebrity cameos like Mark Hamill and Weird Al Yankovic. It goes to show how many people George made an impact on. George was the youngest and called the Quiet Beatle, but he was one of the most talented musicians out of the group. Because he was the youngest and didn't really start composing his own stuff until the middle of the Beatles' career, he was overshadowed by the established dynamic of John and Paul writing songs. He had to write masterpieces in order to break in and compete with the amazing songwriting duo of Lennon and McCartney. My Sweet Lord is frequently overshadowed by the plagiarism controversy due to its similarities to He's So Fine by the Chiffons. I feel like the controversy has overshadowed the quality of the song itself in some ways. And honestly, I don't think that George intentionally tried to rip off the Chiffon song. It's just that back then, you know, you get a tune in your head, you remember a tune, and you don't necessarily know where it's from. In this case, I feel like the controversy has really overshadowed the quality of the song itself in some ways. This song marks another partnership between George Harrison and lead guitarist Eric Clapton of Cream fame, showcasing a great slide guitar and acoustic rhythm combination. The duo famously collaborated on the Beatles' While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is one of my personal favorite Beatles songs, if not one of their best songs. And George made a sneaky, uncredited appearance at the lead guitarist on Cream's badge. Just listen for that phrase that sounds like Here Comes the Sun and you'll know it's George. My Sweet Lord is a very heartfelt song about his own faith, Hinduism, but the message has resonated with many people of different religions and faiths. Without further ado, this is George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. Reels and Riffs will return in a moment, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Dina Sherman, famous voiceover artist and announcer of the Annie Awards. You are listening to WWSU 106.9, Dame's Right Choice. Listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9 FM. Now back to your host, professional radio producer and king of all name puns. Here's Random Allen. 
Welcome back to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. For our final segment, one-on-one, -on -one, we are joined by a very special guest. She's an experienced voice actress playing roles in many fan-favorite shows and video games, such as Roroni Kenshin, Naruto, Elseworld, Smite, and Genshin Impact. But she's probably best known for her role as Yachiru on the hit anime Bleach, and as the annual announcer of the Annie Awards. Dina Sherman, everybody, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm really good. <laughs> <laughs> wow, listen to all that stuff I've done. No, it's cool. I'm so excited to be on this call with you or this interview. So you've worked as like a voice actor for almost 30 years. At what point in your life did you realize that you had a passion for voiceover work? <laughs> well, you know, when you say I've been in the business for that long, it, it makes me sound like I'm older than dirt. Oh, <laughs> back in your day. Um, back in my day, we had three channels on the TV, and the remote was my brother. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you know, I grew up loving Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, Looney Tunes, uh, Hanna Barbera, uh, Scooby Doo. I mean, that Baby and the Goliath. I was not much into, but then. I love how far uh, claymation has come, because that was pretty rough back then, but it was very specific. Back in high school, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it and anybody else, you know, the speech and debate team, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you realize that the speech and debate team has other categories, and I was recruited to be a part of the speech and debate team, but the categories that I competed in were humorous and dramatic interpretation, and... What that is, is a 10-minute, and it had to be a published piece. So play, book, you know, anything that it was published. And you took a 10-minute excerpt, and you had to perform it in kind of a very rigid sort of way. If you had a podium in front of you, not like you had the whole stage. So you just kind of had to be planted. And um, it was really fun because I started to pick pieces like um, Arsenic and Old Lace, and I played... You know, the old ladies and Mortimer and, you know, you know, Cary Grant. I played like five characters and I created voices for them. Um, and uh, I did Diary Van Frank. I did all these just crazy, you know, fun pieces and 10 minutes of them. Uh, and I actually went to um, state nationals. I got trophies from being, you know, for doing oh, wow. this. But I know, I know. I, I mean, I really competed, and I, and I enjoyed it very much. But this is, okay, so I'm going to share a little secret. <laughs> you used to have conditioner that, you know, you, you wash your hair, and you put conditioner in, and you had to leave it in for 10 minutes for it to work. And so here I was in high school competing with these 10-minute pieces. So I was, like, thought I was being really smart about it. So... I would do my thing, put the conditioner in, and then practice my monologue, or I guess I guess it's my single-person dialogue, I don't know, for 10 minutes. I would practice. And then I'd, you know, be 10 minutes, and I'd rinse it all out. Because if you went over, you got done points. So it had to be just under 10. Um, and then I'd rinse my conditioner out, and it was always good. Until I come to find out my younger brothers were complaining to my parents that I had people in the bathroom with me. Oh. Or I was crazy. <laughs> they thought something was wrong with me when they learned I didn't have friends in the bathroom with me. Because he was hearing all these voices. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I guess growing up with me for my brothers was a little nuts. I don't know. 
so um, yeah, uh, and I just loved it. I love I love creating the characters and performing. And it wasn't actually until I I was on camera uh, doing casting director workshops for TV and film and stuff. And one of the casting directors, oh my god, in front of the whole group goes. Um, Dina, I need to call you tomorrow. And so everyone's like super jealous. And I'm like, ooh, Roger Descendant's going to be calling me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so the next day he calls and he says, yeah, you've got this really unique voice. I want you to meet my counterpart, Jeff Danis, over at ICM. And Jeff Danis at ICM took me on. And ICM at the time was really the only agency doing voiceover. And that's kind of how I started. Uh, and I, I love doing what I do. So, for over 15 years, one of the things that you've worked on is you've been the announcer of the Annie Awards, which celebrate excellence in animation. What motivated you to start announcing the anime or the Annie Awards initially? It, it's interesting. I was working on Biker Mice from Mars. I was Carbine. And um, during the season, the producers, two of the producers are both named Tom, Tom T and Tom Cito. Um, they're members of Asifa Hollywood. That's A like Apple, S like Sam, uh, F rank A, Asifa Hollywood. Um, they run the Annie Award. And uh, for anybody in, interested in, you know, in animation, definitely check out Asifa. Um, anyway, they approached me and said, hey, you know, we've been doing these award shows for, uh, I don't know, 40 years or 30 years, whatever it was. And we're moving in a different direction, and we're looking for an announcer. Do you want to come be our live announcer? And I said, sure, of course. That sounds great. And I went home and went, I've never done that before. Oh, no. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? <gasps> okay, I'll fake it till I make it, right? And um, so it was great. It was at the Alex Theater, Alexa Alex Theater in Glendale. Beautiful, old, old theater. Like you'd see, like Charlie Chaplin. You know, like that kind of a look, really old, old Hollywood. It was in Glendale. And I, I got all dressed up, and um, I did my first show, and it's live, and things aren't perfect, and you got to definitely be able to adapt and move quickly. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> I think it, they asked me back, which is exciting. Um, but I think it was my second or third year doing the Annie's. Okay. When I, but I was sitting back, I sit backstage in the wing, like just off, off the side of the stage. You can't see me, but I'm kind of like off to the side. And, you know, the stage usually has a couple of curtains. There's the, you know, the curtain that you always see open. And there's sometimes a curtain back a little bit further. And that was down, that was closed, and it had some real pretty set decoration. But on stage behind that curtain is what we call Video Central. And what that is, you know when you watch the Oscars or any of the award shows, and they always say, and the nominees are, and then they start showing you these video clips? Yeah. Okay. That's all happening live. So they've pre-recorded the video clips, but Video Central is what has that pre-loaded, and they push the buttons, and they play direct video for the correct category, right? Um, so there's people that are backstage or part of the production that make that go up on the screen. I'm sitting in the wing, and halfway across the stage, in the middle of the stage, is Video Central. 
And I'm looking over, and all of a sudden, all the guys jump up and start stomping all over the ground. They're, like, stomping. What? And then I'm seeing the flames, the sparks, and the flames. <laughs> oh, my God. It caught... It caught on fire. <laughs> they're like stomping it out as fast as they can, and someone went to and get an extinguisher. In the meantime, Video Central, in the middle of the nominees are, goes black. And all I hear in my headsets are, Dina, say something, say something. <laughs> I'm watching all this. I, I honestly, all I remember saying, seriously, all I can remember saying is, ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing some technical difficulties. And then I went on to say something else. And Tom Kenny, um, do you know who Tom Kenny is? Yeah, the voice of SpongeBob. Yes, he is so freaking talented. Very funny man and sweetheart, nicest guy. So he's on stage when this happens, and he hears my announcement. Everything, but he doesn't know what's going on backstage. Here's my announcement, and he starts cracking jokes, and you know he's just riffing, and the audience is cracking up. I'm not kidding. Nobody knew it actually happened. Everyone thought it was planned. He was that good. He was that good that everyone thought oh, that wow. this was something that, that we did on purpose. <laughs> He's just like, I gotta go save the show. Um, yeah, yeah. Pat and Oswald did it one year, too, when all the wrong cards were read. But it's a live show. Things go wrong, and you just have to go with it <laughs> and make, make it happen. So um, got me interested when I was asked to do it. And then uh, what kept me there is that I, I, I gave it my all, and they asked me back each year, and I love it. And it's a really great group of people, and I get to meet some pretty amazing, talented people when I do it. So I love it. I look forward to it every year. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, and I want to talk about, um, because you promoted and worked with various charity organizations, like Gamers Beat Cancer, mm. Game On For A Cure, and Watt and Alzheimer's. I'm wondering what led you to become mm. so, like, so involved closely with these charity events, and what positive impact have you seen as a result from these various events that you've been a part of? Um, the second fundraiser that I got involved with was the Walk for Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Association. And um, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and this was back when we really didn't know what Alzheimer's was. And um, when my mom and dad couldn't take care of her at home anymore because it's physically very, very hard, um, and she was sweet and loving. She was a very happy Alzheimer's um, patient, victim, um, they put her in um, a special, these wonderful cottages where they take care of Alzheimer's. And when my grandmother passed, my mother started volunteering and working for them and helping other families dealing with uh, the disease and, and caring for their loved ones. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of fun. There wasn't a lot of um, recognition, like awareness of it. So I started to get involved in doing the walks. And what's really great is since then, I don't think anyone in the United States doesn't know what Alzheimer's is, which that's a big difference. That's 20 years. Um, and uh, so that, that, was, that was that. And then my son, when he was, I don't know, I guess 11, a few years ago, um, we were in the car and he says, Mommy, I don't like seeing um, 
are veterans homeless on the street. It bothers me. And I said, it does? And he goes, yeah, I don't like that. You know, it, it bothers me. They took care of our country and they're, look, they, look at him, he's homeless. That makes me sad. And I said, well, what do you want to do about it? And he says, I don't know. Can I help him? And I said, well, I don't know how to help him personally, but maybe we can help an organization. And so my son, um, wanting to do something, we then partnered up with um, a veterans organization to raise money for veterans. And we paired it with his tennis. He was a tennis, he still is a tennis player. And um, we piggybacked on a tournament that was already taking place in our community. And he raised a couple thousand dollars for the veterans, which oh, wow. was great. And then, yeah, he did a great job. And it was, it was really successful for this little guy. And then the next year he did it again. Um, again, another tennis tennis tournament, and um, I think I think between the two tournaments, I don't know. I think he's raised he raised about fifteen thousand, and then unfortunately, my my mom passed away from a very rare cancer, and when it was time to maybe do our next fundraiser, I said, "Do you want to continue raising money for the veterans, or do you want to do something else?" And he says, "I want to raise money." underfunded rare cancers, the ones that nobody knows about that took me. So my parents taught us when we were little, you know, all growing up, that we should always put our passions for something to a purpose. And so that's what he was doing. And he decided that he still loved tennis, but he was a big gamer. He was really into video games. And so we created Game On for Cure, and we partnered up with Cure It Cancer, which takes care of underfunded rare cancers like kidney cancer, lung, ones that you don't know about that doesn't get all the great government funding. And then he partnered up with Game Changers recently, and they they work to help uh, kids in, in hospitals currently battling cancer or life-threatening diseases, and they can't go anywhere. And it brings gaming equipment and technology and events to these kids in the hospital. And that resonated with my son. And so we then created that, <laughs> you know, raising money for it. And he just had his uh, another event, even with COVID and virtual event uh, a couple months ago, where we're still raising money and he's still doing it. Um, and so that's kind of how those days came about. We've worked and, you know, he's now, almost 17 and he's starting to learn to do these on his own so it's great to watch him learn and move forward as how to put what he loves and inspiring other kids and people to put what you love to use to helping others well dina it's been amazing having you on the show it's been great talking to you it's been great talking to you too this has been so much fun i was wondering if you had any last words for our listening audience anything's possible and if it's something that you really, really want to do, you've got to have two brains about it, in my feeling. I was, I, I once said, I feel like um, my head's in the clouds like a balloon, like I'm flying, but my feet are firmly planted on the ground. And I think some people that are super uber successful, like their feet are off the ground, they're just, you know, they're just going for everything. But to survive in this world, I think you need to remember that you do have to make a living. You do have to have responsibilities and fund what your passion is. Find a way to do that. And then if you can, 
don't ever squash that inner child, that voice that says, I've always wanted to do this. Find a way to do it. If it whether it's art, drawing, illustration, writing, you know, creating stories, voiceovers, acting, anything. Find a way to still fulfill your passion. Don't ever let that, don't ever leave baby in the corner. <laughs> baby, play. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, is that too deep or is that too silly? I don't know, but that's, that's my belief, is that always, always embrace that, that passion. Again, that was voiceover artist Dina Sherman. Go follow Dina on Twitter. She posts about her voiceover work and regularly posts read-ins of bedtime stories for kids. Starting today, January 27th, the Sherman family is hosting an event called Games for a Change to raise funds and awareness for the Game Changer charity. They're bringing in the voice actors and streamers from the Genshin Impact community together to participate in live autograph sign-ins through Streamly, January 27th through January 31st. And... They are hosting a streamer's 24-hour live stream event on January 29th to 30th. Check it out. It's for a great cause. That's our show, folks. We'll be back next Thursday live in studio with my friend and local musician Steve Lloyd. You are listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. This has been Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. If you missed an episode, tune in to Reels and Riffs on Spotify. Follow Reels and Riffs on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week on White State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's Right Choice.